0: Welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast where we talk about how medieval and medieval inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Iftdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined once again by Media Evils resident Doctor Who expert, Lily Bonneman, to talk about 2010 Doctor Who episode, The Vampires of Venice. So Lily, welcome.
1: Thanks. Um, I'm like a bad penny. I keep turning up. <laughs>
0: Well, I am always happy to have you, and just in case this is any listener's first episode, why don't you tell them a little bit about yourself and about why you keep coming back on particularly to talk about Doctor Who?
1: Well, so it's been about four years now since I first was talking to Sarah and found out she had never seen an episode of Doctor Who before, and so I was like, we should rectify that. And so now we are on, this is our 10th Doctor Who story. Second from the new series. We've done six classic serials, two big finish audios, two new series episodes. And also, we've reviewed a few things that aren't Doctor Who, but those aren't relevant.
0: (laughs) You can come back to those another time. Yeah. So today we are, uh, once again, going to be getting into the new series. So this is uh, Series 5, Episode 6, and stars Matt Smith as the 11th Doctor. This is my, uh, my first uh, exposure to, uh, to the 11th Doctor, who is now apparently Demon Targaryen in, uh, the House, of the, in House of the Dragon, which I have not seen because I still have grouchy feelings about the last season of Game of Thrones.
1: I don't blame you. That's... Yeah, 100% fair. Um, he was also in The Crown as young Prince Philip.
0: I can kind of see that. Opposite,
1: <laughs> I want to say, Claire Foy as Elizabeth II.
0: Hmm. Okay. Do you have general feelings about, the 11th do- about Matt Smith as the 11th Doctor?
1: I like him. I would say that if I were to uh, rank every actor who's played the doctor from my most to least favorite through no fault of his own. He comes in at the bottom of the list. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Just because I like everyone else more.
0: I like his style.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He's got, I I like, I I like his outfit. Yes.
1: There have been, there have been
0: some doctors whose outfits are like bad and his, I like Uh
1: he's, he's like very much like he's the youngest actor uh, to ever play the role and yeah. also he plays him i feel kind of the oldest right like he is he is yeah. very much an eccentric grandpa in like <laughs> of young man's body
0: right well looking right very youthful yeah we also have Karen Gillen as Amy Pond, who, uh, from what I, uh, and she, by the way, plays Nebula in the MCU, and uh, from what I gather, has been as a companion around for a few episodes by the time we get to this one.
1: Yes. Once we get done with our little uh, cast list, I'm going to give a, a brief recap of the season to this point so we know where we're. Excellent. Where we stand with the Doctor and Amy and Rory.
0: Excellent. We also have Arthur Darville as Rory Williams, who is uh, in the Sandman TV show, where he plays uh, Richard Maddock, who is an extremely unpleasant and upsetting character, which is polar opposite of Rory. <laughs> right. Who seems like a very nice man. Rory's
1: a sweet guy. Everyone loves Rory. Yeah.
0: Except maybe his fiance. Well, <laughs> as we'll get, it. <laughs> she's man, she should figure it think out. It's better. Uh, <laughs> We also have Helen McCrory as Rosanna Calvieri. Fuck J.K. Rowling, but she is quite good as Narcissa Malfoy in the Harry Potter films. She, she also is Cherie Blair in The Queen and then also plays the same role in, uh, I think that movie is called The Special Relationship, and I believe Michael Sheen is Tony Blair in both of them.
1: Interesting. I Yeah. <laughs> sure. I don't, I have no mm. idea.
0: I also heard her recently as the voice of Still Maria in His Dark, The His Dark Materials TV show. And uh, she sadly died in uh, 2021. She had breast cancer oh. and she was only like in her early 50s. That's sad. Yeah, so that sucks. We also have Lucian Misamati as a Guido, who is uh, kind of shows up as a, um, one of our kind of resident uh, people who actually live in 16th century Venice. Mm-hmm. He is also in his Dark Materials. He plays John Fa. He's really good and is uh, briefly in Game in the Game of Thrones TV show as Salador son. Mm-hmm. And finally, the other person cast wise that I was going to mention is Alex Price, who plays Francesco, who is uh, Rosanna's son. He plays a character who uh, I absolutely do not remember, but still feel I should give a shout out to. He is in one episode of Merlin. There is somebody behind you who is like intensely looking into this recording studio. Oh, it's it's fine. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. I'm just like, does, does this person have an opinion about something? Um, anyway, he played anyway, uh, props on the TV show Merlin. But he uh, I do not remember this character who's called something like Sir William of Dara. At all, Uh, but he's also in uh, Penny Dreadful, he is Proteus, and I do kind of remember him in that, Uh, so.
1: The role I know him from, he was Sid in Father Brown, which is, uh, it's, it's, have you seen Father Brown? I don't think you have.
0: No, I have not.
1: It's this BBC, like, murder mystery show, it's like... A little, a little village in fifty in nineteen fifties uh, England, and it's about a Catholic priest who solves murders as a hobby. <laughs> and Father Brown himself is played by Mark Williams, who you would recognize as Arthur Weasley, and ah, yes. regular Doctor Who v- viewers will also recognize as Rory's dad. Uh, but alex price plays sid who is like this uh ex-con who's a close friend of father brown teaches him how to pick locks fun guy useful guy to know if you're a if you're a habitual murder solver
0: yeah absolutely (laughs) enumeratio At this point, we can get into what actually happens in the serial. But before we do that, uh, why don't you give us a bit of context? Uh, and by us, I also do mean including me, a bit of context as to how we got to this point in the uh, in the series. How
1: we got here, <laughs> the pre-numeratio, if you will. Yeah. So, going back to the, the to the start of this season, the Doctor freshly regenerated. Regeneration can sometimes be an explosive process, especially if the doctor is trying to, like, hold it off. Mm -hmm. So the explosive regeneration damages the TARDIS. He crash lands in the back garden of this seven-year-old Scottish girl named Amelia Pond. You know, she finds him something to eat because he's having a craving. He's never had cravings before. He investigates this uh, crack in her bedroom wall, which it turns out is not so much a crack in her wall as it is a crack in the fabric of space-time, which oh, is a problem. And these cracks keep showing up, and that's kind of the overarching mystery of the season. But the TARDIS is still unstable, so he's like, I need to like stabilize the engines, jump five minutes into the future... But we all know how the doctor is with steering, so he overshoots by mm-hmm. 12 years. Uh-huh. Excellent. He meets now 19-year-old Amy who is fully grown and pissed at him for not coming back for her. Mm-hmm. Then they he like they have an adventure and save the world. It's it uh, along with Amy's boyfriend who is a nurse named Rory. Once that adventure is done, The doctor, he's going to invite Amy to join him, but he warms up the engines by taking a jaunt to the moon and back, and he's overshot by another two years. (laughs) He returns to 21-year-old Amy, and unbeknownst to him at that point, uh, the the night he has landed in her back garden again is the night before she and Rory are to get married. And Amy's having some of those, like pre-wedding doubts and jitters
0: i will note as we get into things the fact that she is 21 and i don't think anybody should get married at 21 it does make her situation a little more sympathetic in my opinion because i would have thought she was older so anyway we'll we'll get back into that
1: the doctor and amy go off on some adventures together because amy's like you know it can it can be the night before my wedding as long as i like because we have a time machine right So they, you know, go to the future, meet Queen Elizabeth X, go to the past, fight Daleks with Winston Churchill, go back to the future, uh, fight Weeping Angels with River Song, and at the end of that last uh, adventure, in the heat of the moment and all the uh, adrenaline of being relieved to be alive, Amy kisses the Doctor, and the Doctor is... Not on board with that, because A, for him, it's only been a few days since she was literally seven, and also, she's getting married in the morning, and so he's like, okay, if she's going to be stress-kissing anyone, it should be her fiancé, so let's go get her fiancé, and that is where we pick up at the start of this episode.
0: Yes. We start off in Venice in 1580 we see that uh, there's this uh, this woman, Signora Calvieri, who seems to have this, uh, what kind of seems like sort of a finishing school kind of deal for young women. Yeah. And this man, Guido, comes in with his daughter, Isabella. She's only 17. He's a boat builder. He can't give her a lot of options in life. This very fancy lady who seems very sinister says, like, ah, yes, we'll take her, uh, asks her son if he likes her, and he confirms yes, which is very creepy. And the father agrees, says goodbye to his daughter. And, of course, uh, we see the son reveal his uh, vampire teeth. yeah So things are presumably not going to go very well for poor Isabella.
1: In a fun little editing choice... Her scream at seeing the vampire teeth segues into all of the yelling at Rory's stag party.
0: <laughs> yes. So Rory, who I will say, other than I kind of have a thing about like the stripper in a cake thing for a variety of reasons.
1: I also don't think that that was like Rory's idea. <laughs> that does not, Fair. that's not a very Rory move. I'm sure that was his friends set that up.
0: That seems very possible. But Rory, you know, he's it's his bachelor party or stag party. And, you know, he's, you know, giving his fiance a call and, you know, drunkenly letting her know how much he still like likes her and wants to marry her. You know, seems like all around a pretty decent guy. Mm-hmm. Stripper cake shows up and the doctor instead pops out of the uh, of the cake. At which point he uh, shares with him this uh, lovely information that he has kissed his fiancée well, that his fiance kissed him, which is worse. And is overall, I would say, kind of not uh, winning friends and influencing people no. at this bachelor party.
1: Uh. Uh-uh. And and Rory already knows the doctor at this point because they had that first adventure
0: uh, mm. together
1: two years previous.
0: Right. Okay. And so he tells Rory that uh, he's going to then bring him and Amy now on basically a uh, romantic, dangerous time travel date. I mean,
1: he doesn't say dangerous and he doesn't intend dan- dangerous, but danger is really par for the course.
0: <laughs> yes, and this is gonna help them uh rekindle her romance, which seems necessary because there's like a solid couple minutes there where I'm not a hundred percent sure Amy has acknowledged that her fiance exists,
1: yeah, I will say like in most other episodes, like this is like a rocky this is like the rockiest that their relationship ever gets like mm-hmm. from this point forward like it's very clear that like. Despite the odd, like, fight they might have, like, Amy and Roy really are, like, a good match for each other.
0: That is nice to hear, because I got, like, (laughs) this episode is not a great one for their relationship. I'm just gonna say, this dynamic to me was looking bad. This dynamic to me looks hardcore, like, you know, she's somebody in a monogamous relationship who is, like, hardcore embarked on an emotional affair.
1: Yeah. No, (laughs) it, it, like... From from like yeah the next episode onward, like their their relationship stabilizes, <laughs> and and like it's it's a lot better.
0: <laughs> I am glad to hear that because yeah, she is uh, she is not nice to him in this yeah. episode. I just I just like I kept writing in my notes like I would dump her ass so fast.
1: Yeah, she still like occasionally flirts at the doctor but like mm-hmm. it's it's but like it's the way you like flirt with a close friend
0: mm-hmm. so okay because this this episode this was uh this was a weird dynamic but yes so he uh he takes them to venice in 1580 meant to be very romantic they enter the city he uh is told as he enters that uh they are under quarantine they are concerned about the black death The doctor seems very surprised about this, as I will discuss later. He probably shouldn't have been quite so surprised. But he does, however, have his, um, what is it? It's like a psychic paper thing where he just shows people the paper and they kind of see what they want to see. Pretty much. Uh, And I would like to note that, so to him, they say something like, I'm so sorry, your holiness, I didn't realize. (laughs) Presumably that he is the Pope, I guess. Yeah. Yeah uh-huh so that's fabulous amy i think they say is you know some something like, like a, con, a, like a countess. yeah yeah and, so, and, know, and then and rory to...
1: takes a look and he's like it says here i'm your eunuch
0: yep it's like oh poor guy poor rory. this poor poor boy
1: uh, <laughs> The the universe likes to beat on poor rory
0: I know. I I felt, I really felt so bad for him throughout this episode. And I never feel bad for men and -hmm. this like entire episode. I'm just like, Oh, this poor dude. (laughs) Yeah. Like he just seems like a decent guy whose fiance, just like, as I said in this episode is giving off strong vibes of being like not into him.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: So they start to get an inkling that something strange is going on. When they see uh, the uh, our, our boat builder Guido uh, trying to speak to his daughter among the eerie collection of women uh, surrounding a Senora Calvieri, and um, she seems to not recognize him, one of the other girls like hisses at him, like normal young ladies do in Renaissance Venice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He clearly knows something is up, and the doctor uh, becomes suspicious as well. And we also gradually, uh, we also then uh, start to see a little bit of what's uh, what's going on. And so what's going on, as we uh, as we know it at this point, is that Signora Calvieri and her son Francesco appear to be vampires. Mm-hmm. And what they seem to be doing are uh collecting various young women whom they are turning into vampires. They are also by the way, way too cuddly for mother and son,
1: yeah, well, yeah,
0: yeah, for like mother and son at at that age, I don't mean like when like it would like that's fine when it's like a nine year old mm-hmm. but not for an adult, yeah. When you're an adult, it's Christmas When you're an adult man, it's creepy to have your head in your mother's lap. That's creepy. Just a bit. Just a tad. Yeah. That's that's getting creepy. They also have, you know, an additional inkling that something is going on. Because they actually uh, see uh, see Francesco uh, going for a little bit of a snack.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Annie and Roy are, like, <laughs> weird. It's like, it, they're, like we're in venice in 1580 this is actually really cool and then they see like francesco like in an alleyway snacking on this flower girl yep rory who's a nurse stops to check to make sure that like she is in fact still alive which is good and amy just takes off chasing francesco but loses him
0: this is also like one of the scenes that where like (laughs) rory keeps seeing like he's like seeming like he's trying to like talk to her and maintain a relationship and amy just seems like she is having zero of it uh-huh
1: yeah
0: uh as i said i'm glad to hear that they like improve but the dynamic in this episode it was not good no it was not good at all uh-huh. the doctor sneaks into the palace to uh start the process of investigating and as he's looking in a very lovely uh 16th century mirror he uh then turns around and sees all of these lovely young women who are not visible in the mirror, which is creepy. And even creepier, they all speak in unison.
1: Yeah. And the doctor's like, ooh, you don't... Are you... Is this what I think it is? Ooh. Mm. (laughs) Tell me all your plans. This is
0: so interesting. And they just kind of like hiss menacingly at him and he uh, kind of runs off.
1: Yeah. Well, they're they're like, we'll call the steward to throw you out if you right. get that far. <laughs> and he's like, tell me all your plans. Someday that'll work.
0: He, at this point, then uh, takes off. So at this point, you know, they, they've they also, they kind of uh, gotten together with Guido and are discussing the fact that, okay, we clearly need to uh, investigate the situation further. They discuss possibilities. The first is that the, you know, that Amy suggests that she could go in disguised as a young woman, potential pupil in this, uh, finishing school thing, rejects the fact that the doctor could possibly pose as her father because he looks too young. And then also rejects that he could pose as her brother because that would be weird, but says that, Oh, Rory could pose as my brother. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this poor dude, this poor dude. I've really never felt this bad for a man before.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. It's it's not great. I mean, I suppose like in in a little bit of fairness, like she and Rory did grow up together more or less, but still. Still,
0: if it's weird for the doctor to be her brother cuz they kissed once, but not weird for her fiance whom she has presumably in this day and age I would assume slept with. Yeah. Yes. It's a weird move. It's a weird move. It's a weird thing to say. Uh huh. <laughs> and then also, it ends up, of course, being Rory. Also, because you know they've they've already seen the doctor, and so you know that uh, that could be suspicious. So Amy and Rory go to the palace to carry out this plan, having also rejected uh, Guido's other plan, which is I've got a fuck ton of explosives. <laughs>
1: uh huh. He's he's like uh, we. We work on the warships down at the uh down at the docks, and he's got and he's like got all these barrels of gunpowder which Rory has been sitting on, and when he realizes what he's sitting on, he just like immediately moves to the other end of the room, yep. <laughs> and the doctor's like, "Wow, most people nick stationery from where they work <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> there's also a lot of barrels there,
1: <laughs> yeah, and he's like I, I have this thing about." Guns and high explosives. I yep, don't approve. Not
0: here for it. Yeah. So poor Rory goes with Amy to the uh to the palace. Rory is not super skilled at the whole like disguising himself convincingly. No. And so he's there and he's like, I'm a gondola driver and this is my sister.
1: He he gets more he gets a little better at that stuff yeah Uh, but this is his like first adventure right he 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 gets better at acting and better at fighting after later in this season he spends some time serving in the roman legions
0: Mm. so and also like no shade like i'm not sure i'd be so good at this like at like this either (laughs) so yeah true (laughs) But poor, poor guy, he is uh, he is struggling, bless his heart. They managed to then get Amy in because of the fact that they uh, have, through the doctor's, you know, psychic paper thing, they have uh, references from the King of Sweden. Mm-hmm. She is left behind. Uh, She, you know, starts, uh, she actually starts trying to talk to Isabella, who seems like she's uh, not totally transformed. She seems like she's kind of at least a little bit of herself. Uh, She, and she tells Amy about, you know, what, what kind of she, what she has experienced, which uh, the only thing that she remembers is that she gets like taken down to this room and tied up. um, And then in the morning, you know, wakes up back in this chamber.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they they they've got like this big chair with like straps like a surgeon's chair and and then she doesn't remember yeah. what happens next because she just wakes up in the in yeah. her bed.
0: Right. So the doctor and Rory now go to, uh, you know, rescue Amy and figure out, you know, continue to figure out what's going on. Rory starts asking him about, you know, the the kiss and what happened with him and Amy, which the doctor kind of starts trying to deflect. And uh, I love that Rory says something like, I have a right to know I'm getting married in 430 years.
1: Yes, that's such a good line. But the, yeah, the doctor's like, do we really have to talk about this now we, when we're infiltrating the vi- the vampire hideout?
0: Yeah, the doctor in general uh, does not, uh, is uh, kind of keeps deflecting. Like, there's also a bit where they're like, where Rory's like, oh, cool. Like, I've got a flashlight. And then the doctor pulls out, like, one that is, like, much larger and also has ultraviolet rays, to which Rory says, uh, yours is bigger than mine. And the doctor responds, let's not go there. <laughs> uh Such a stupid joke. It's a really stupid joke. And also, again, poor Rory, this poor dude Mm -hmm. who, like, you know, because, like, for Amy, a bunch of time has passed, right? But for Rory, it's like yesterday he had a normal relationship with his normal fiance. Uh And then today he's like, cool. So apparently she's been, like, as I said, given the vibes I'm getting in this episode, kind of seems like she's been basically, like, carrying on a long-term emotional affair with somebody that she is now significantly more interested in than she is in me. Yeah. Amy is now uh, trying to figure out what's uh, what's going on and uh, gets uh, gets snucked on a little bit. Yep. Just yep. a bit.
1: But she is able to, like, lash out and kick it at uh, Signora Calviari and... Uh, she kicks the perception filter that she's been hiding under her dress to keep her looking human, and we get to see what she really looks like.
0: Which is kind of like the alien from Alien. A bit, yeah. But like a little fishier. Fishier, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, kind of like if you crossed that alien with a fish. Uh-huh. You'd kind of get this. And so what we learn at this point, right, is, uh, in fact, uh, they're, they're not aliens, they are vampires and that, you know, the but whole plan, are, No, right, they're is, not
1: vampires. Sorry, they are I'm aliens. sorry. I'm
0: sorry. N- yes. They're not vampires. They're aliens, bespoke. And so the plan that as, uh, we learned so far is that they take these girls and gradually turn them into other fish aliens, by uh, draining their blood and gradually replacing it with their own, which is, I guess, a kind of multi-night process to uh, to yeah. take effect. And that's
1: that's like classic vampire. But...
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. You know, that's 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 right out of Dracula, right there. Yeah. She also uh, says to Amy at this point that you uh, you will have uh, you know like thousands of husbands under the sea, which I was like, oh, I don't like the sound of that. uh uh-uh. Uh no. Not at all. The Doctor is, however, uh, thrilled to hear that they're not vampires, but are aliens. It says classic, which is a good, uh, like, slightly breaking the fourth wall joke.
1: So, back in the classic series, in a a serial called Stones of Blood, we got to see uh, what in the Hooniverse are actual vampires, which are a big enough, scary enough deal that, like, The time, the civilization of the Time Lords considered them a significant threat. Mm -hmm. So the fact that these are technically not those is a good thing. Right.
0: Right. Right. However,. It is, though, by the way, uh, too late for poor Bella. So Bella uh, tries to help them or sort of helps them escape, but she is uh, far enough along in the process that she cannot escape herself because the light is like burning her. Yeah. So So even though she's not 100% turned, yeah, she's like enough that she's having.
1: They've got the classic sunlight weakness. Yes. Although very much not the the weakness to running water (laughs) because they're fish.
0: Yep. And she is uh, taken, pushed off a plank. She's like, what's the big deal? I'm Venetian. I can swim. I'm fine. And uh, it turns out that the problem is, of course, that she uh, is being delivered to all those uh, husbands under the sea. In the lagoon. It's it's yeah. Venice. It's a lagoon. Right, yes, lagoon. So she is uh, delivered to her uh, myriad lagoon husbands who seem like they eat her.
1: Mm-hmm. It's, it's very, like... Piranha trap.
0: Yeah. So at this point, as uh, the doctor, you know, returns, and we start to learn more about exactly what is going on here. So they are aliens from a place called Saturnine. And, you know, have this, uh, you know, and she's been disguising herself with this perception filter. And the reason they can't see them in the mirror is because the brain doesn't know, like something like the brain doesn't know how to like fill in the gap. Like that's just like too yeah. far removed essentially from the filter. And so they just like, don't see anything. Yep. And uh, we hear that they are refugees from something from what they call the silence.
1: Yes. The silence are one of the big sort of arc mysteries. Like there's this, there's this like phrase that, that people keep saying that's like, silence will fall yes which later we find out is just part of a longer sentence that's silence will fall when the question is asked and then the the question becomes what's Mm. the question um (laughs) right and they fell and they and they ended up on earth because they fell through those cracks in time that i was mentioning earlier right
0: yes i was wondering if that's uh the same sort of cracks in space time and so basically she was like i saw something that looked like an ocean went to that one crack snapshot behind me. And so she wants to build her fun new society here in Venice.
1: New Saturnine.
0: And he says, and this is kind of interesting, that he uh, he, says basically, like, he says basically, like, I'm not on board with this. Like, I'm going to, like, like I'm going to wreck you. And he actually says the reason that, like, I am in no way sympathetic is because when I asked about Isabella, you didn't remember her name. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of sweet, actually. Yeah. Because, you know, because she keeps kind of presenting it as, like, to the doctor, as, like, you're committing genocide. Yeah. Like, this is the last of, like, our species. And, like, this is the only way we can save ourselves is by, uh, as we'll see, uh, taking over the city of Venice. Which would also uh, shift history rather dramatically yeah. if uh, Venice was uh, wiped out and taken over by fish people <laughs> in the year Yeah.
1: Just a, just a, just a, just a tad. Yeah.
0: Oh, just a little. She is trying to figure out what's going on, uh, what uh, to kind of do going from here. Uh, because her perception filter keeps malfunctioning because Amy kicked it, uh, it's also great that we uh, also get to find out at this point that Carlo, her, like, advisor dude, uh, seems to not be 100% maybe in on exactly what all this plan is because he sees her as, like, fish lady and is like, what the fuck is that?
1: yeah. He's like, I mean, Carlos just a human servant.
0: <laughs> he's yeah,
1: just, he's just here for the money, and he and and like, I respect to him for for like seeing his like mistress turn into a monster and still sticking around for the money.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> he's just like what? I mean, I also like I do think it's interesting in terms of like I don't think they ever really. Quite explain like how she managed to kind of get herself set up here? Like, is she also sort of manipulating people to like think that she's like always been there? Well, that's that's kind of
1: how a perception filter works. It's like uh like a perception filter it doesn't like make you invisible. It just makes mm. like it just makes people not notice that anything is unusual.
0: Okay, so in addition to like, seeing her and seeing some Venetian noblewoman, it's also plausible that they see her and are like, ah, yes, Signora Calvieri has always lived in this house, and, like, forget about the people who lived in that palazzo last week, who she probably ate. Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes sense. uh, So the doctor manages to figure out, right, that the plan is that they're going to sink Venice, and that what must have happened is that when they came over here... They must have only ended up, I guess that only the male offspring survived Mm -hmm. the trip. And so now they, uh, first, before sinking Venice, need to turn a lot of girls into fish monsters uh, so that they can repopulate the city. Or repopulate, like, revive their species. Yeah. 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 (laughs) 10,000 husbands under the sea. At this point, some of the uh, the young women in question appear. Uh, Guido stays behind to uh, to take uh, to let them escape, and also I think a healthy dose of taking vengeance and uh, basically uh, suicide bombs these vampires. Yeah, vampire alien. Yeah, people. no,
1: he he uh, he takes the doctor's big ultraviolet light to hold them off because you know ultraviolet light hurts vampires. It's, it's like sunlight in your pocket, at the, do- the doctor describes it as. And so Guido lures the vampires into the room with the gunpowder, and kaboom.
0: Kaboom. So he's dead. Rest in peace, Guido.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And the rest of them escape, uh, while meanwhile, Signora Calvieri is uh, busy filling the sky with fire. She is, uh, she is really fucking up the weather here in Venice.
1: Yeah, she's got like this weather control machine built into her th- into her big fancy throne. And th- the doctor at this point sends Amy and Rory back to the TARDIS because because, you know, Rory called him out earlier. He said, "The thing that's dangerous about you is that you make people want to impress you."
0: Yeah, which yeah, I thought was a really a really good like emotionally intelligent like It is. Explanation for the dynamics. Here. Yeah,
1: and it's it's like in over thirty seasons of show, I think he's the first person to like explicitly call that out.
0: Yeah, good for him. I like Rory.
1: Rory's great. I love Rory.
0: Yeah. On their way back to the TARDIS, they run into Francesco, basically, you know, try to uh, actually goad him by insulting his mother.
1: Yes. The only thing uglier than you is your mom. <laughs> What did you say about Mummy?
0: <laughs> Rory fights with him, which uh, is clearly not a skill set he has currently.
1: No, no, he uh, he does not gain any fighting skills until he like spends some time in the Roman legions later right, this which, season. You know,
0: fair, no reason he should have fighting skills as yeah. like a random, you know, first half of the twenty first century English dude. Yeah So he's fighting, uh, he uh, attempts to make the sign of the cross, uh, just kind of going off his vampire lore
1: and francesco and amy both give him a look like what how stupid like, are you
0: <laughs> why
1: <laughs> why
0: she basically kind of defeats him while he sort of you know got uh got rory pinned down on it by uh she kind of uses like the mirror and her cos- in like what looks like a cosmetic case basically mm-hmm. to like reflect light and yeah, uh and focus kill him.
1: it down on him and he yeah. and he just like into dust
0: yep She then comments on and makes fun of him for the sign of the cross thing. uh, And then they, they kiss and seem like they've figured out their shit.
1: Yeah. And then they go back to help the doctor. Uh, They catch up to him in the throne room. And the doctor is like, first, it's all you, uh, you make people a danger to themselves. Now it's, you won't leave. You make up your mind. Mm.
0: (laughs) uh, Right. Which is actually arguably proving his point, but
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know. So the Doctor instructs uh, Amy and Rory to, like, tear all the wiring out of this throne while uh, the Doctor finds the secondary control panel slash generator, which it turns out is at, like, the top of the spire in the the building on the bell tower.
0: They manage between, you know... Amy and Rory shut down the uh the throne control hub, uh, the Doctor shuts down uh, the uh, the tower control hub and everything goes back to normal. Yep. Rosanna, Calvietti then she's she's out. She uh feeds herself to her sons.
1: Yeah. Yeah, which is which is which was set up earlier like around the like execution of Isabella because uh Right. The, because Francesco's like, "Mummy, turn off your perception filter, otherwise that, my brothers might think they're being fed twice today."
0: Right. So, so actually, that's interesting that the perception filter apparently works on like their species.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, and the what the the note I will make, which I, I assume is not anything that comes back, is that however the presumption is that like these um, strapping young fishmen are, uh, I guess, going to be, like, living in Venice kind of indefinitely. Like, I don't know how long their lifespan is. I guess.
1: I I don't know.
0: But, but I'm sure that, like, even in 1580, like, you get enough, like, drunk people and dumb tourists, like, falling into the lagoon that, like, they're not all going to starve to death. Sure.
1: Yeah. Nah. Mm.
0: Like... For as long as is, like, at least the, you know, so they're not reproducing, but for as long as the, like, lifespan of these creatures, uh, mm-hmm. they they are just going to be hanging out in Venice, presumably.
1: I guess. Well, there's some stuff that happens later in the season that means, that makes it so that they probably don't last that long, but that's... Okay. That's complicated.
0: Okay, well, we don't worry about that, but yeah, but I, I did find it entertaining that, like, based on how this this episode ends, it does seem like they're they're just like chilling in Venice. Yeah. Anyway, they head back to the TARDIS. Rory's gonna join the team. Mm-hmm. Amy says, "Got my spaceship, got my boys." <laughs> yeah.
1: Yep. That is that is kind of the dynamic where it's like it's like we are not her boys. Yeah, we are yeah we
0: are <laughs> right so which is like still a little bit weird but like it seems like we're at least like on the way to the, a uh better the di- relationship the dynamic dynamic. is
1: stabilizing it's getting better yeah yeah in the next episode like they have to deal with like they're they're in, it, they keep like falling asleep and waking up and there's like these two worlds and like there's this character called the dream lord who says it's like one of the worlds is is a a dream one of them is real Mm. if you die in the dream you wake up in reality tell me ask me what happens if you die in reality what happens if you die in reality you die stupid that's why it's called reality
0: (laughs) i saw the like next time on doctor who was that toby jones
1: that's toby jones (laughs) um fun but yeah uh but ultimately like they can't tell which is real and which is fake, so they have to, like, take a leap of faith, which ultimately mm-hmm. Amy decides that, like, because, like, uh, in one of the worlds, Rory gets killed, and Amy's mm. like, a world without Rory in it isn't worth living in anyway. Mm. So.
0: Yeah. Interesting. All of that is uh, not medieval and will have to be saved for another time. Yep. Well here we'll have to continue with our Vera at Falso, where we talk about what the show got right and wrong. I will say we are like, I think like kind of kind of relatively light on historical content in general. Like there yeah. aren't a lot of like real people in I mean there are no real historical individuals.
1: No, no there's like a brief mention of a few because the doctor likes name dropping but he's like Casanova won't be born for another 145 years that's good right. I owe him a chicken <laughs> there was a bet which
0: like that tracks I could I, that, that that dynamic makes sense to me Uh uh-huh. but there were a couple of things I was going to remark on one is that the doctor has this like whole bit basically where he kind of like talks about like Oh, it's when they're uh, they're first entering the city, where he seems very surprised at the fact that they're, like, worrying about the plague. This seemed to me unreasonable. So there had just been a pretty major outbreak in, of plague in Venice quite shortly before this, 1575 to 1577. This outbreak killed about a third of the population of Venice, so about 50,000 people. And in fact, the city had been uh, struggling so much to find places to bury all of these people that there are apparently still some places in the city of Venice where you might notice that the pavement is higher than in other places. And that's because of like the layers of corpses beneath it. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And so like, given that... It, do- it is very much the case, right, that even that, like, basically, like, places did continue to take precautions, right? So they'd, like, just had the plague in Venice three years before. They are, you know, they- and, like, there's never a sense in the, you know, 16th century that, like, the plague is totally gone. Like, everybody at this point knows the plague is something that, like, keeps coming back. So it's actually completely reasonable and not the, like, red flag that the doctor treats it as that they would be, you know, still observing a quarantine, which was a common practice at this time, that, like, ships would have to stay in port for 40 days in order to make sure that people didn't have the plague, and that uh, they actually kind of reference the fact that uh, people have these, like, health passports, essentially, yeah. that, like, attest that you have not been in, like, a location that is known to have plague.
1: Yeah, and uh, and this is actually where we get the word quarantine from, I believe, yes. the Venetian quarantino.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's like Quaranta is the Italian word for 40 because, you know, 40 days is the uh, the standard period. Mm-hmm. I do actually think it is an interesting dynamic that one of the things with these health passports is that it does seem like it's pretty clear that to some extent you can kind of buy them, that like if you are wealthy enough and important enough, you can get somebody to rate for you something that says that you have not been anywhere with plague. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so completely plausible that uh, people of their purported status would have good documentation in that respect, uh, regardless of whether or not they should. Yeah. I did look up. I was curious as to uh, whether or not, in fact, gondolas really are this old. And in fact, they are uh, first referenced as a mode of transportation in Venice in the 11th century. Mm-hmm.
1: And it does, so? and it does make sense. I mean, like you, you, it's it's a city full of canals. You need little boats to get people around.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. I think it's actually not on the. I think on the whole, it's uh, actually struck me as a relatively decent kind of overall depiction of Venice in the year fifteen eighty. As these things go, her clothing is like not that far from what you see in uh, paintings of Venetian noble women in the late sixteenth century, um, with the kind of like elaborate like rough isn't the right word i can't remember what it's called but the kind of Um, like elaborate kind of like thing behind her which sort of like mirrors her like fish scales
1: yeah yeah i (laughs) i don't remember what it's called either but um my favorite thing with the costuming was uh when when rory and amy go to get amy into the school they've put on clothes from the era you can tell that they borrowed them from Guido because Guido is is yes. wearing Rory's stag party t-shirt, which is, which is way hilarious. too small on him.
0: <laughs> which is way too small on him. And like Guido's clothes are clearly like way too big on Rory. And it is also hilarious because like this t-shirt, not only does it like, I actually kept waiting for somebody to like comment on it because it literally has like a photograph of Amy and Rory on the front. Uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs) And I kept, like, kind of waiting for somebody to say, like, what a realistic portrait you got of the two of you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But nobody actually ever, uh, ever says that. And, um, and, you know, and I kind of like that, like, Venice clearly seems like it's, you know, very much a sort of, like, bustling, vibrant city, which sort of makes sense in this period. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not too long after this, and around 1600, historians sometimes talk about Venice as being kind of in a slow decline. But even by then, not really in a way that would have been apparent to people who lived there. Yeah, Venetians would have been, you know felt that you know venice was very much a commercial center the government was very stable the currency was like very stable and sort of like well reputed so you could like use venetian currency in other places which is you know useful if you're in some place like the italian peninsula where if you walk more than 15 feet you're in a different country essentially
1: yeah (laughs) speaking as uh someone who has studied a lot of like English, French, German history of this period. God bless the Venetian ambassadors for providing detailed but relatively neutral accounts of the goings on at court. Because uh, <laughs> like, and that kind you know, of that makes all, sense. The, all the English and the French and the and the imperial like ambassadors, they've got their agendas, and then the, you've just got the Venetian there who's just telling it like it is because he's because he doesn't have a stake in any of these like constant wars
0: right like the venetians aren't really that engaged in that stuff really what the venetians mostly want at this point is that they're concerned about the ottoman empire you know which makes sense because they you know have like you know they like really want that kind of like control of the Eastern Mediterranean and the black sea. And like for a long time had all of these like territories that are getting like slowly eaten up by the Ottoman empire going mm-hmm. back to, you know, when they like <laughs> conquered Constantinople in the 13th century.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Venice did this to themselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ultimately.
0: Yeah, so, like, that's really their concern, and, like, they actually kind of, like, get, you know, kind of, like, get a team together, basically, in the early 1570s, and so, you know, the kind of big battle there is the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, which, you know, basically kind of, like, wrecks the Ottoman fleet, and that's, like, really good for Venice's self-esteem. It kind of has relatively little lasting impact, though, because, Mm -hmm. like, the Ottomans are like doing well enough that they just like basically build a new fleet, like pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it, you know, doesn't it, but you know, so it's, it's but like that, the point is really like, that is really what like the Venetians are sort of like mostly concerned with in this period. Yeah. And then the uh, last thing I was going to note quickly uh, is of course, vampires. Uh, I do just have to briefly talk about vampires.
1: This is our second episode talking about vampires. <laughs>
0: Yes, so um, I I won't totally repeat everything, but uh, I will just note you know vampire folklore certainly exists in the Middle Ages. It's especially common in Central and Eastern Europe. In Italy, they seem to have a uh, had a growing interest in vampires somewhat after this, in about the seventeenth century. But you know that's fine. They people don't have to be interested in them for them to be there, I guess. And uh, I will note that I uh, remain 100% convinced that, like, the idea of vampires is, like, deeply linked to, like, late medieval and early modern ideas about blood, essentially, including that, like, the Eucharist, like, the ritual of the Eucharist is, like, this, like, symbolic cannibalism where everybody's supposed to, like, drink the blood of Jesus. Uh And, of course, also, like, less fun that um, uh, Jews are persistently, falsely accused of ritually murdering Christian children in order to use their blood, both, like, kind of reenact the crucifixion and use the children's blood in various things. Uh, For example, in making matzah, which, if you've ever eaten matzah, you know that that also makes no sense, because then matzah might have flavor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: it's the best argument against ritual murder accusations masa does not have enough flavor to have blood in it i can (laughs) promise you that yep historia et veritas so the other thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of the sort of historical aspects of this is for the Historia at Veritas, I want to talk a little bit about women and uh, their kind of social and economic power in 16th century Venice. And one of the things that I actually think is very cool about this is that, you know, you have this uh, this woman who is, you know, clearly in charge of things. Like, mummy is clearly running shit, uh-huh. not, uh, not little Francesco. And this actually totally would fly in late 16th century Venice, which I really actually like. Especially because so many things that take place in the Middle Ages tend to de-emphasize the concept that like women could have agency and power so I really appreciated that about this episode because there absolutely are like wealthy aristocratic women even with adult sons who are like running the household in Venice in this period so essentially, the big thing to talk about here is the dowry system. Uh, so basically, how this works is that when women get married, they're expected to bring into their marriage, uh, some amount of money, which represents it'll, it I, represents or replaces depending on how you interpret it. And this is, I would say, also kind of different, you know, in different times and places, but uh, essentially, it's kind of represents her inheritance. So this is money that's meant to be under the control of the husband for the duration of his lifetime, but that then she has the uh, right officially to collect in the context of widowhood. And a lot of interpretations, especially interpretations actually focused on Florence, have historically seen the dowry system as like bad for women, uh, Has not was the kind of traditional interpretation for a long time, that the dowry system essentially is a way of kind of disinheriting women. And the scholarship on Venice was actually really important as an early corrective to say that at least like that's not true everywhere because in Venice, especially if we're talking about elite women, so women who are kind of part of, you know, Venice, like it's called a Republic, but it's really an oligarchy, you know, one of those things. So, you know, women who are kind of part of this Venetian elite, first of all, both because of kind of ideas about sort of what's appropriate about inheritance, but also because of uh, of dowry inflation, because basically you need like a better dowry to get like a better husband um, or, you know, somebody of more appropriate social stature. Like women are absolutely getting like a fair share and maybe sometimes even like more than a fair share of like, inheritance like you know being divided equally amongst children sons and daughters with the only thing being that you know for most women you don't get to control it during your marriage your husband controls it but venice also absolutely seems to be a place where women uh do have a decent amount of success especially when you're talking about these elite women that they're successful they have a lot of family support they have a lot of governmental support and are pretty successful in collecting their dowries. Uh, some women actually kind of don't do so while their children are still minors. But what that actually ends up kind of meaning in a Venetian context is kind of that they're still just like running the house and kind of managing all the money of their late husband's estate. And then, you know, at some point, if they're, you know, their children reach adulthood, and they kind of divvy things up and uh, collect on the dowry. So, you know. A like middle aged woman running shit like this is absolutely something that you know nobody would have questioned in sixteenth century Venice. So uh, I like that the uh, the perception filter is uh, fitting into that. And uh, the other thing that I think is kind of interesting here is that uh, we really also see how kind of powerful and influential these women are even after their children reach adulthood, in part because, again, of the dowry. The dowry is sometimes for these elite women like a fuck ton of money. And because it is so much money, basically everybody in the family, like she can also um, she also has the right to dispose of this money in a will, however she sees fit basically. So like, if you're her son, and she thinks you're a dick, she could, uh, you know, give you kind of a token sum, and give most of it to, you know, her nephew. <laughs> and so like, these women actually have a lot of influence, basically, because people like, listen to them, because they like, know, there's a lot of money it's taken to want to get cut out of the will. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, as I said, I, I thought that was like, very cool that, Uh, you know, maybe not a very positive representation of a, uh, you know, powerful woman because she turns out to be a blood-sucking fish alien. But, you know, but undoubtedly, right, somebody who, you know, is this kind of really powerful matriarch. And as I said, like, I think it is cool that at least we're kind of implicitly recognizing that that's part of what with, you know, in the context of the perception filter, That's part of what would have appeared normal to the people around them. Uh, The fact that a woman has this position, right, is that, you know, that that it makes sense, right, that they wouldn't, that the nature of the perception filter, from what I understand, they wouldn't want to have a kind of family dynamic that people would think was weird.
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And so I think that's cool, right, is that I think it kind of implicitly, even if it doesn't really overtly talk about this, that it kind of implicitly recognizes the fact that, yeah, this dynamic of this, like, very, very powerful woman is clearly her and not her son who's running things would not actually have been out of place in this context. Nice. Yeah. Fabula Nostra. With that, I guess we can get into the uh, the Fabula Nostra, where uh, we come up with our own idea for some sort of story we'd like to see in the world, inspired by this one. Mine is terrible, so I don't know if that means <laughs> I should go first or last. I'll
1: do, I'll go first. Um, okay. I went with... A, I took The Vampires of Venice, and I went with a more metaphorical, ancient bloodsucker. I want... I'm, I'm thinking... Of, uh, Either a Doctor Who story, or just a, sh- or just like a historical drama show about a, a certain historical figure who I really hate, the blind old man of Venice, Enrico Dandolo, mm. <laughs> and how he, his greed was so strong that he diverted the entire goddamn Fourth Crusade to sack the greatest city in Christendom.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah. I really think we are like so overdue for a good, it probably won't be good, but like we are <laughs> so overdue for like a good fourth crusade movie. Yeah. Or show. I, I can't believe it's not
1: been done. I mean, like there's tons of third crusade material.
0: Yeah. And I think this is kind of more interesting. And it, like, it's, I think it's kind of more interesting and fits so well into so many tropes in some ways because like there's so much uh, there's so much of a vibe now of like representing religious motivations in the middle ages as like deeply cynical like the fourth crusade like that actually kind of yeah, works no yeah and as like, opposed to like a lot of other things where they do that and it's like no he like kind of believes this for better or worse
1: no, no nothing nothing gets more cynical than the fourth crusade sack of C- constantinople
0: yeah, and it's like, and it's so interesting, right? Because you have like sources, uh, you know, like uh, like Greek sources from the period that basically like could describe like the Venetians and the other Crusaders like as like pagans, basically.
1: Like they, they like were it's so fascinating. It's it's so like far from what is like religiously proper that like mm-hmm. the Pope excommunicated the entire Crusade before they made it out of Italy.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, these people, they're sacking churches. Yes! And also, like, by the way, like, this is why there's, like, a whole lot, like, this is why there's a whole lot of, like, nice stuff in Venice, is that, like, a lot of it is stuff that they just, like, straight up stole from Constantinople.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, they're, they're the they're like, the fact that it's such a, like, great repository of, of Byzantine treasures, they didn't come by them, honestly. <laughs> nope. No,
0: they did not. <laughs> Absolutely not. yeah. So I think that would be great. I came up with the worst idea ever, which uh, <laughs> they I will just say in advance, they should not do this, especially because I don't think anybody would do this well. And it's an awful idea. No, okay, no
1: but so, <laughs> I've read the notes and I, I, it makes me laugh.
0: <laughs> okay, so as I was saying before, I absolutely do think that vampire mythology uh, owes a lot to medieval anti-Judaism, anti-Semitism, and in particular, right, these accusations of ritual murder. So I was inspired to once again do uh, vampire aliens in early modern Italy. So one of the uh, best known ritual murder accusations is uh, the accusation that uh, members of the Jewish community of Trent murdered a boy named, a young boy named Simon in 1475. A number of members of the community were then tortured and uh, and executed. Horrific. So, Mm -hmm. and you know, and we obviously, as historians recognize that, you know, the accusation was clearly false. But you know, but we don't know for sure, because they obviously didn't pursue other avenues of inquiry. We don't actually know, you know, we in this case, like we know, there was actually a dead kid in some other cases, like, there seems to have not actually been like a real body. In Blois, it seems like basically, they like saw somebody carrying a sack of flour and are like dead kid. But in Trent, like, we do actually know, unfortunately, there was, like, a young boy who was murdered by somebody. Or, you know, or something happened to him. So, what if it was vampire aliens the whole time? Sure. Sure. My, uh... Plan Doctor Who episode is going to invent a uh, new murdered child and a related ritual murder accusation that's then going to be a bit later. It's going to be in the city of Trent in the year 1562, which is when the Council of Trent is on its uh, the kind of last of its, uh, it's kind of starting the last of its sort of stages of meeting, essentially. Uh, and the Council of Trent is, of course, the kind of main council of what gets called. Uh, Either the Catholic Reformation or the Counter-Reformation, but basically the churches attempt to respond to the Protestant Reformation by kind of in some ways thinking about, you know, is there a way, to, a way to, you know, what do we want to kind of emphasize as still being very clearly our doctrine and what ways we want to kind of try and maybe appeal to some of the people who are, you know, looking toward Protestantism, but that uh, essentially kind of we're looking for, you know, this uh, this way of reforming our own church in response basically to uh, these you know, to the development of, you know, of Protestant Reformation, essentially. As it turns out, the uh, the Jews seem to have been basically uh, kind of kicked out, you know, any Jews who weren't executed were basically kicked out of Trent in 1475. I'm going to invent the fact that, uh, you know, in, in the context of this invented ritual murder accusation, there happened to be, you know, some Jewish merchants kind of visiting the city uh, who are then accused. And the doctor has to, you know, Expose the real culprit culprit within reason without obviously revealing the fact that they're aliens, but, you know, figure something out in order to both, uh, you know, protect these innocent people, and also to uh, avoid there being any kind of, you know, big uh, sort of disruption in terms of kind of what should happen historically, because there's also a concern that the Council of Trent is now going to kind of veer away from what it's supposed to be doing, historically speaking, to kind of like delve into this kind of big like condemnation of Jews across Europe, essentially. Yeah. Not that they are nice to Jews, just to to be clear, but that like that wasn't the priority mainly of the Council of Trent, per se. Uh, So yeah, so they they should not actually do this because I, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, it's probably... It is a terrible idea, but (laughs) I'm still going to mention it as an idea. Okay, sure. And I do actually think uh, that there is fruitful territory to explore in some way about the fact as i said that like absolutely like i think there's like really interesting like religious stuff happening with vampire mythology
1: yeah doctor who is at this point done um there have been four different like aliens that sort of fall under the uh heading of vampire-like but since like the first ones are vampires, the later ones have to be called something else so like there's the mm-hmm. vampires from Stones of Blood, there's uh, the hemavores from Curse of Fendrick mm-hmm. there's the plasmavore from uh, Smith and Jones mm-hmm. and then there's the Saturninians from Vampires of Venice and then on top of that there is a big Finnish audio where they meet Vlad Dracula.
0: <laughs> like ah. the historical one. Yes. <laughs> so. <laughs> yes. So a lot of uh, vampire-esque beings. Other question. Has Dr. Hugh ever acknowledged that Jews exist? <laughs> I, I want to say yes. Like, because
1: there's so much of it, but I can't think of any... Specific examples.
0: I mean, I'm just curiously, in part just because, like, British casual anti-Semitism is, like, a real thing. Yes. (laughs) So Um... it might, like, be for the best if they don't.
1: (laughs) Um... Yes, but (laughs) Doctor Who in general, especially in recent years, has been better about a lot of things that uh, Britain in general is not. Mm-hmm. Like, like the the sixtieth yeah. thir- anniversary specials had, among other things, a trans companion played by a trans actress, and awesome, a major recurring character who is a wheelchair user, and oh, they cool. did, and they did that well too.
0: Nice, yeah. So yeah, I don't know, maybe maybe they could figure figure it out uh, and the I will say actually the other idea that I had which is probably uh, less awful is that in terms of kind of thinking about you know other things related to Venice in relatively close to this period another thing actually that I think could be interesting is of course that uh, there is also the uh, the Shakespeare play The Merchant of Venice, which you know is not an accurate description of anything that actually happened in Venice. Shakespeare probably had never fucking been to Venice but I think it could be interesting to have something that was kind of like a takeoff on that that you know was kind of very like overtly like critical of that narrative yeah um but that like kind of did something with like actually you know you could do something really interesting with like the late 16th century Jewish uh you know Jewish community
1: I did just remember it's not it's not a it's not an episode it's not even a character it's just one very memorable line river song versus nazis uh she's like mm. she they're like uh halt state your intention and she's like well i was on my way to this gay gypsy bar mitzvah for this for the disabled when i thought gosh the third reich's a bit rubbish i think i'll kill the fuhrer who's with
0: <laughs> me <laughs> excellent excellent <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I think like that, uh, I think that actually could be good. like, there is like, or as I said, like this, like Venice is actually where the, uh, the first ghetto was in the sense of like, there actually being like a really, like a kind of very like formal mandate that all Jews had to like live in this like defined and like, in like Jewish quarter that increasingly didn't actually have like enough space. But there's also like a really interesting history of like Jewish printing in Venice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you would actually do something that is like a kind of like, critical take on the merchant of Venice. Oh, yeah. That's that's made by my better fabulous Este Matteo. Yeah, so with that, we can rate this episode on a scale of one to five based on whatever purely subjective criteria we see fit. And I would say I'm going to give it a four. I really enjoyed this. Uh, other than the plague comment, I didn't think there was anything like too egregious, historically speaking, uh, you know, in part because you, don't have, you sort of don't have to worry about that many things because you're making people up. Mm-hmm. I thought that uh, Signora Calviere was actually a kind of like very, like very cool villain who had these very like interesting resonances with like real Venetian noble women. For me, kind of honestly, like the biggest downside of this episode for me was like the amy rory relationship just being like hardcore cringe for me
1: yeah honestly i'm also going to give it a four out of five for exactly the same reasons like amy and rory get better but right now it's not good so actually the season finale ends with them getting married and then flying off with, with the doctor again, who oh. is their ride to their honeymoon trip.
0: Oh, which I'm sure will be longer and less where it was supposed to be than it was meant to. Yes. Well, yeah. As as is the, the fashion.
1: You know, a nice spaceship, a space liner cruise that um, ends up crashing
0: yeah, it, tracks. Yeah, yeah. I am mean, honestly, like I will say, solid steering at the beginning of this episode. It seemed like he wanted to go to Venice in 1580 and made it to Venice in 1580. He's
1: getting better about it.
0: Yeah. He, he really is, yeah. Espe- especially after
1: that whole uh, "you showed up 12 years late" thing. He's he's
0: working. <laughs> right. He's very he working on his shit. <laughs> trying very
1: hard to like actually get. To the correct places. Yeah. Although there is an episode next season. It's called The Doctor's Wife. hmm I'm gonna give you I'm gonna let you guess who the care the title character is. It's someone you have met before. It's not Amy.
0: Thank God. Yeah. Um <laughs> what's her name? Uh Sarah Jane? Is it her?
1: No. It is the TARDIS. Oh, the TARDIS for for one episode written by Neil Gaiman <laughs> gains the ability to actually speak, huh. and so we get to find out what what she thinks of everything. And she's and interesting. Uh, and the Doctor's like, "You never take me where I want to go," and she says, "But I always take you where you need to go." Mm. So
0: there you go. So, Lily, thank you so much for once again joining me and talking about pre-modern Doctor Who.
1: Yeah, anytime. I hope we can do this again very soon. Um, I've already... Absolutely. I watched the season up to this episode in preparation for this episode. hmm Then I went ahead... Then I kept going and watched the next season and a half. So I've watched our next episode. Okay. <laughs> um. Excellent. So hopefully we can get, get to that pretty soon.
0: Yeah, sounds good. So, are there places that the listeners can find you on the internet?
1: Possibly, if you dig hard enough. I've, I've got a Tumblr. I'm Shadow Academic on Tumblr. That's where I'm probably most active. I'm in the Media Evil Facebook group. So, as much as anyone still uses Facebook for anything. And that's pretty much it. I, I abandoned Twitter back when it was still Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and i will not call it the other thing. Yep. <laughs> I refuse. Yep. They can't make me.
0: <laughs> yeah. So please do join the aforementioned uh Media evil Facebook group which is uh i think a pretty kind of good good community of, you know, with uh, lots of medieval memes and things like that. Please also rate and review the podcast on your podcatcher of choice. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast. Uh, we are, for the time being, still on Twitter because it is an ongoing project of mine to try and figure out alternative social media, but that involves time that I do not have. I say as I contemplate the fact that I have not prepared for either of my classes that I'm teaching tomorrow, doing well today and this week. But you can find the podcast on Twitter at media Evil Pod, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd also love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So, Lily, thank you again. Yeah, thank you. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil.
1: Bye. (laughs) Bye.